welcome back. If this is your first time listening, thank you for tuning in to Beyond the Abstract. If you're a returning listener, we appreciate you tuning in as always. Um, if you're not familiar with us, we are a podcast that is dedicated to reviewing scientific literature as it pertains to the practice of physical therapy and as it pertains to strength and conditioning and barbell sports. Uh, my name is Sean Dolan. I'm a physical therapist and strength coach currently residing in Richmond, Virginia, even though at the moment I'm in Roanoke, but uh, for the other 99% of the time, um, I'm usually in Richmond and I'm actually flying solo today. Typically, I would be joined by my two friends and colleagues, doctors Jonathan Plotz and John Flanagan, who are both physical therapists and strength coaches themselves. But we're actually going to try something a little bit different today. So at this point, all three of us have jobs, we're all employed, and uh, we all have our personal lives and that sort of thing. So finding time to, to sit down and have long-form discussions on a given topic or a given paper has become uh, increasingly difficult. Uh, so that being said, we still want to discuss uh, literature and research as it comes out. Um, so we're going to try doing some short-form podcasts and short-form episodes. So the idea would be that you know one or two of us sits down has a brief discussion on a paper or a topic and we kind of review the paper and give our own insight or our uh, sort of clinical application of the paper within 20 to 25 minutes and hopefully that'll allow us to continue to put out a decent volume of, of content but that way we won't have to you know try to fight around scheduling and, and what each of us is doing in order to, to have those discussions. Um, this isn't going to replace those long-form discussions, but, you know, as the long-form discussions become less frequent, these should serve as a, as a nice intermediate between when those come out. So this is going to be a first attempt at a short-form episode. Um, if you don't want to listen to me talk for 20 to 25 minutes, if you can't tolerate that, then, you know, just uh, we'll see you in the next episode. But if that's something you think you can manage, then... Uh, stick around and we'll go ahead and, and dive into today's topic. So today's discussion is going to focus around cholesterol and aerobic exercise training. Uh, the title of this paper is Determining the Effect Size of Aerobic Exercise Training on the Standard Lipid Profile in Sedentary Adults with Three or More Metabolic Syndrome Factors, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis of Randomized Controlled Trials. Um, this was authored by Gina Wood and colleagues. Um, this came out of the British Journal of Sports Medicine earlier this year. Before we jump into the details of the paper, I think it's worth defining some terms and giving some definitions. So first, we'll talk about the standard lipid profile, and that describes uh, blood lipid content by type. And there are a few key categories within the standard lipid profile and reference ranges that are worth noting. So um, that profile is made up of uh, total cholesterol, triglycerides, high-density lipoproteins, or HDL, and low-density lipoproteins, or LDL. So the reference range for total cholesterol, you would want under 200 milligrams per deciliter. For triglycerides, we would want under 150 milligrams per deciliter. Uh, for HDL, 
it's broken up into um, males and females so and that's also regarded as the quote-unquote good cholesterol so for males we would want greater than 40 milligrams per deciliter and for females we would want greater than 50 milligrams per deciliter and for your low-density lipoproteins or LDL um, we would want under 100 milligrams per deciliter and LDL is generally regarded as the quote-unquote bad cholesterol Moving on from the SLP, uh, we can talk about why cholesterol is important. So high cholesterol or hypercholesterolemia, or as the paper defines it with regards to the standard lipid profile, uh, dyslipidemia, uh, those are associated with the development of cardiovascular disease and specifically the development of atherosclerosis. Uh, atherosclerosis is regarded as the general aggregation of lipids and cholesterol in the blood onto uh, blood vessels um, and in most cases or majority of cases it's LDL that contributes to the formation of um, these atherosclerotic plaques so if we use the coronary arteries or the arteries that supply the muscles of the heart as an example um, I'll just give a very rudimentary overview of, of how this occurs the, the pathophysiology of um, atherosclerotic plaque aggregation is very complex and beyond the scope of this paper and um, the example that I'll give but generally speaking the, the LDL uh, aggregates on the interior of the arteries so of the arterial lumen and that forms into an atherosclerotic plaque uh, initially this is probably going to be asymptomatic but over time months and years as the plaque grows the relative risk of tissue ischemia increases so in a worst case scenario you would have uh, significant arterial occlusion and in the case of a coronary artery uh, that would kind of impair the amount of oxygen that's being supplied to cardiac tissue um, if it becomes significant enough or the plaque becomes large enough and you have a you know a significant degree of occlusion to that tissue. Uh, the tissue will under, undergo necrosis from uh, hypoxemia or uh, lack of oxygen in a worst case scenario. And that might manifest as uh, angina or chest pain and may result in something like a myocardial infarction where you actually have uh, cardiac tissue death um, or basically any other you know instance of acute coronary syndrome which uh, on the whole, I think we can all agree is a, a bad thing. We don't want that. Also worth defining is uh, metabolic syndrome. So that's defined as the presence of three or more of the following cardiovascular disease risk factors. So those would be a BMI of over 30, which is uh, defined as obesity, hypertension of uh, systolic blood pressure of over 130, over a diastolic blood pressure of greater than uh, 85, uh, elevated triglycerides, uh, low HDL, and uh, fasting glucose of greater than 5.5 millimoles per liter or the diagnosis of diabetes mellitus, or having medication to manage any of the above conditions which would imply that you have been diagnosed with one of those conditions and there's medical management for it. Finally, it's worth defining or worth talking about how the authors defined aerobic exercise intensity. So they break it up into moderate intensity and vigorous intensity. Uh, moderate intensity would be defined as 40 to 60% of your heart rate reserve or your VO2 max. 
uh, 55 to 70 percent of maximal heart rate or an RPE of 11 to 13 on the uh, Borg RP scale, the 20.1. Um, and then vigorous intensity exercise would be defined as 60 to 85 percent of heart rate reserve or VO2 max, 70 to 90 percent of maximum heart rate or an RPE of 14 to 16. So moving on from the definitions, we'll give a brief overview of the study characteristics. So the design, as stated in the title, it was a systematic review and meta-analysis of RCTs. If we look at the methodology, the eligibility criteria for the studies um, included studies needed to use participants that were clinically identified as having metabolic syndrome. And the studies needed to include anaerobic exercise intervention that was at least 12 weeks in length. The aerobic exercise training interventions needed to be greater than 40% VO2 max, so at a minimum they needed to be moderate intensity per the author's definitions. And the included studies needed a non-exercising comparator group. Uh, to rank study quality, all studies were ranked by a test tech score, and uh, per what the authors provided, it seems that greater than a score of 10 indicates better study quality and better outcome reporting. And for the statistics, a meta-analysis was conducted to determine the effect sizes of aerobic exercise on the various components of the standard lipid profile. The heterogeneity of the studies was also calculated, and a meta-regression was conducted to elucidate if any a priori covariates might explain significant effect size differences. So moving on from the methods to the results. Um, the total number of participants included in the meta-analysis was 2,990. Um, if we look at the components of the standard lipid profile, it looks like aerobic exercise training actually improved all aspects of it. Um, total cholesterol was reduced, uh, triglycerides were reduced, HDL was marginally increased, and LDL was reduced. And we should note that all of the effect sizes reported had correspondingly tight confidence intervals, which generally speaking means that we can have more confidence that the effect size reported was the was a true or more true representation of the magnitude of the effect of aerobic exercise on the components of the standard lipid profile. And the reported meta-regression, so it, it appears that uh, changes in low-density lipoprotein were 50% associated with the volume of aerobic exercise training, and the changes in triglycerides were 50% associated with the intensity of aerobic exercise training. So two separate variables within aerobic exercise training. If you're interested in the specifics of each effect size and the specifics of the reporting, I'd recommend getting a copy of this paper and just reviewing the, the tables that they provide. Um, I'm not going to dive into the nitty-gritty of that, but uh, just know that it appears that aerobic exercise training does improve the standard liver profile in this cohort of patients. So moving on to the discussion, um, we'll kind of go through three big questions that the authors address, and then we'll discuss the final conclusions uh, from the authors. So first question is, what is already known about this topic? Um, we know that cardiovascular disease risk is reduced if there is a reduction in LDL or if there is an increase in HDL. And this assumes that the individual has um, prior reporting of high LDL or prior reporting of low HDL. 
Prior studies and prior literature suggests that aerobic exercise training does improve the standard lipid profile, so um, this study just adds to that body of evidence. But uh, the effects of aerobic exercise training on the standard lipid profile had not been consistently described prior to publication of this paper. Uh, the second question, what knowledge does this paper add to this topic? Uh, we now have a general understanding of the magnitude of the effects of aerobic exercise training on the SLP within this cohort of patients and the degree to which the components of the SLP might be reduced or affected by aerobic exercise training. And the third question, what do the results of this study add in terms of clinical significance? So within this cohort, uh, over 12 weeks, aerobic exercise training did improve the components of the standard lipid profile and subsequently reduce the risk of developing cardiovascular disease. And the authors add in the discussion, based on their numbers from the study, it appears that um, the total cholesterol decreases that are shown here are associated with uh, coronary heart disease reduction or risk reduction of 10 to 15 percent. HDL increases were associated with a 4 to 8 percent reduction in cardiovascular risk for males and a 6 to 12 percent risk reduction in cardiovascular disease for females. Um, they also add that aerobic exercise training could be prescribed as an adjunct therapy for triglyceride management. Um, in conjunction with utilizing statin drugs as for hypercholesterolemia and dyslipidemia management, the, the standard of care is still uh, statin drugs and dietary modifications. So we'll move on to the author's final conclusions. Again, in this cohort of patients with metabolic syndrome, it appears that aerobic exercise training is an effective therapy for managing lipids and reducing cardiovascular disease risk. And the authors go on to suggest that aerobic exercise training volumes of 180 to 200 minutes at or above 65% uh, VO2 max should be the weekly target to affect the standard lipid profile in persons who are sedentary and have metabolic syndrome. So that about does it for the paper. Um, I'll provide kind of my thoughts and my opinions on this paper with consideration to other literature and the prior research that was done in this field. Um, and I'll answer a couple questions that I have written here. So first question, how do the author's recommendations stack up to current ACSM recommendations? So the American College of Sports Medicine has uh, activity guideline recommendations um, for aerobic activity and resistance training. So the current recommendations suggest 150 minutes of moderate intensity aerobic activity per week with two times a week of resistance training of all major muscle groups um, and that's for uh, adults in the United States. So the authors of this paper are recommending uh, aerobic exercise training that's actually at a slightly higher training volume and intensity than what the current recommendations by the ACSM are. So I do see a couple of issues with this. Um, if we look at data from the CDC, it appears that roughly 50% of Americans state that they're meeting the aerobic exercise training guidelines. Um, call me a cynic, but I'm a little bit skeptical of that. Uh, moreover, the 50% of folks that are reporting that they meet those guidelines um, haven't been identified as having metabolic syndrome or as being uh, consistently sedentary, such as the folks uh, in the cohort in this study. 
So that presents some unique challenges with uh, consistently engaging in exercise and um, kind of adhering to to the guidelines that the authors present in this paper. So uh, from my point of view, I think the goal should initially be consistently engaging in some physical activity. And that's just for everybody, but specifically for folks who are previously sedentary or who have uh, metabolic syndrome, I, I think literally doing anything is better than doing nothing. Uh, particularly in these folks who are already at an elevated risk of developing uh, cardiovascular disease based on their SLP and based on their uh, lifestyle habits. Um, and to that end, I think the, the ACSM guidelines are probably a good starting point to shoot for. So if you can meet that 150 minutes of moderate intensity aerobic activity per week, um, and you can do that consistently over you know X period of time, then at that point, if the the standard lipid profile or presence of other comorbidities haven't been improved in someone who has metabolic syndrome, then from that point on, moving towards the recommendations of 180 to 200 minutes of at or greater than 65% VO2 max provided by the authors in this study, like it's an easy transition to just increase the volume a little bit once you're at the ACSM uh, activity recommendations. The, the second and final question that I'll discuss is what is the role of the physical therapist, the strength and conditioning coach, or the personal trainer in management of hypercholesterolemia or uh, dyslipidemia? And I'll speak from the perspective of a PT. I, I don't think that our role is explicit, but as with anything else, I think we can certainly help folks engage in regular habitual physical activity. Uh, makes me think of the discussion that we had a while back about osteoporosis and how we fit into the care team. Uh, with that, you know, the odds of us seeing someone explicitly for osteoporosis is pretty low in the same way that it's probably pretty low that we're treating someone um, because they have dyslipidemia or because they have hypercholesterolemia. The more likely scenario is that, um, one, they present with some kind of musculoskeletal condition and they just happen to have uh, been diagnosed with metabolic syndrome or they have components of metabolic syndrome as comorbidities or the second option would be that we're, you know, I would be seeing them after they've had a, a coronary event or uh, a heart attack, um, which of the two scenarios is, uh, you know, probably worse. So uh, the effects of having elevated cholesterol already kind of wreaked havoc in, in that person. So we wouldn't be treating it explicitly, but I think if we utilize exercise as the primary intervention that um, that's employed to kind of treat any musculoskeletal condition or uh, condition someone who's had uh, a heart attack back to whatever their quote unquote functional normal is, uh, the nice thing is that we know that aerobic exercise training uh, does have an effect on on the SLP. So we would improve those markers of health and, and improve the relative risk of um, either developing cardiovascular disease or having another cardiovascular event. So in a way, I suppose it could be quote unquote preventative, even though we wouldn't be using it explicitly as a primary, you know, that wouldn't be our primary treatment target, I guess is what I'm trying to say. It, it's a, a nice adjunct. Um, and moreover, it seems that aerobic exercise training and resistance training are great ways to affect the other contributory factors in, in metabolic syndrome. So I guess if we were to look at it for, you know, getting your money's worth or kind of what's the, what's the best bang for your buck at this point, 
um, the exercise training would kind of check all those boxes. Now, you know, the effect sizes aren't huge, but in, for folks who are detrained, who have been sedentary pr prior to seeing you, um, it's, you know, the effects might be amplified a little bit, which, which is encouraging. And moreover, you know, after, after they finished care with you for whatever they're presenting to clinic for, that condition itself resolves. The, in a perfect world, that person would be engaging in physical activity more consistently because the educational recommendations and the things that we do in clinic have resonated with them and, you know, they've kind of gone through that behavior change process. At that point, it's really easy to refer them to a strength coach or refer them to a personal trainer who can, you know, provide watchful guidance over how they progress with their exercise and leisurely exercise activity. So um, I think as a PT, our role is to, to provide that education, but you know, also provide referral to someone who can more consistently give them exercise in a, in a non-medically necessary and a non-clinically necessary way. So that about does it for, for this discussion. If you've made it this far and have been able to uh, tolerate it looks like my 20 some odd minutes of rambling uh, appreciate it uh, as with everything that we do with this podcast uh, we encourage feedback and we really appreciate any and all feedback that um, you guys give us so as the listening audience if this is something that you'd like to see or hear more uh, from us on moving forward then let us know if you love it let us know if you hate it let us know uh, we take all feedback seriously and we try to change uh, what we do based on the info that you guys give us. So um, we'll leave it there for today and uh, we'll see you guys in the next episode.